Good morning. Why don't you guys go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 37. It's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to be covering several chapters, but we're going to start there. So go ahead and find your place, Genesis chapter 37. Just a reminder, maybe your guest, maybe you've been away for a week or two. We are three weeks into what we call our Bible 2020 series. And as a church, we've set our face, if you will, over the next year to read the Bible cover to cover. We'll be reaching or preaching through portions of your reading. So what that means is what we cover this morning, you'll be reading next week at some point in the Bible reading plan. And just want to say, if you've not started that plan, maybe you're new, we encourage you to just jump in, just jump right in. We're going to be reading through this together, but there are paper copies available out there. All this is available online. You can go on our website or the app and follow this Bible reading plan over the next year. So Genesis chapter 37, I I want to begin the message this way, uh, there was a, uh, and if you resonate with this song that I'm going to share with you about, you can kind of give your age away, but back in the 90s, there was a very famous song by a woman named Bette Midler. Bette Midler, she sang a song, and the name of it was From a Distance, now maybe you remember that song, and the, the lyrics of the song, a portion of it went kind of like this, they said, God is watching us, God is watching us. She liked to repeat herself, and she said it again. God is watching us from a distance. Now, that was a crazy popular song back in the 90s. The problem is the theology is awful. <laughs> the idea that she's trying to communicate is this, that the God that we know and personally stepped into our existence through Jesus Christ, who created all things, who holds all things together, Somehow, Bette Midler says, spins everything into existence and then just kind of steps back as a spectator. He's not intimately involved in every detail of the lives of his children, of his people, of his called out ones. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, we looked at this last year when we walked through Romans together, I think would strongly disagree with Bette Midler. Paul says this, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, we know this, it's going to kind of set our course for this morning, but Paul declares this to be true in Romans 8.28, he says, and we know that God causes some things, nope, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Does, God, does Paul say there that everything in our life is good? No way. But our God works all things together for good. For who? Those who are called according to his purpose. Is this a universal truth for every human being? No. It's true for the people of God who by faith have placed repentance and faith in the person of Jesus Christ. It's his people. So if you're here and you know Christ this morning, you can rest on the promise of Romans 8:28 that God is causing all things to work together in your life for good. Now, the theologians have a phrase for this to describe this promise in Romans 8 and it's this. It's called the providence of God. The providence of God. It can be defined this way. It is God's continual activity in his creation in the lives of his people preserving all things. Colossians says Jesus is holding all things together. He is preserving all things 
and he is directing all things in order to carry out his divine purposes. Listen, that is incredible news for the people of God. Here's the challenge for us this morning as we look at the life of Joseph. I say that, it's easy for me to memorize that verse. Do I believe in the providence of God when someone deeply hurts me? Do I believe in the providence of God when the report from the doctor is not what I thought? Do I hold to Romans 8.28 when God calls me to a step of obedience and I'm wrapped with fear and I'm fearful to step out? Do I believe, you know what, God is going to cause, even if I fail, He's going to use it for good. And I can step out in boldness and obedience to Him. What does all that look like? One of the reasons I love walking through the Bible like we're doing and walking through these Old Testament narratives is it takes these biblical absolute truths like this one and puts skin on them so we can know what that looks like in somebody's life. So here's a big truth that comes out of Romans 8.28 that we're going to see fleshed out in the life of Joseph this morning. The big truth is this. God causes all things to work together for good in the lives of his redeemed people. That's an absolute promise throughout the pages of Scripture. Now, let's see what does that look like with skin on it in the life of Joseph beginning in Genesis chapter 37. Find your place there. We're going to walk through this account. We're going to cover several chapters, so hang with me. Let me try to, let me try to catch you up historically where we are when we come to Genesis chapter 37. Remember last week. We were introduced to the patriarchs of the Old Testament of the Bible. Genesis 12, Abraham. God made a promise to this man Abraham back in Genesis 12. This promise is pulled throughout the Bible. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to promise you a people, a nation, a land, a son. From that son is going to come a nation. And from that nation is going to come a Messiah. And from that Messiah, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Promise made to Abraham. From Genesis 12, really through the end of Genesis, and even ongoing through your Bible, you see that promise lived out in the lives of Abraham. You see it then lived out in the life of Isaac, his son. Abraham and Sarah had a boy. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a wife. Her name was Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Jacob and Esau. You know the whole story of Jacob and Esau. God said, no, through Jacob, even though he's the second born, my promises are going to be carried out. This nation Israel is going to come through Jacob. And if you remember the story of Jacob, I'm not going to take time to walk through it. You'll read it this week. His life is a mess. <laughs> In fact, his name Jacob means deceiver. He deceives his dad. He deceives his brother. He deceives everyone around him. Then he is tricked and he's deceived. Ends up marrying a woman that he didn't want to marry. So then he ends up marrying another woman. He has multiple wives. And from these wives, he has all these children. And this big bunch of kids becomes the sons of Jacob, who eventually become known as the sons of Israel when God changes Jacob's name to Israel. You can just read all this messiness in the book of Genesis, all these family issues. So one of Jacob's sons was a man named Joseph. He wasn't the youngest, he was the next to the youngest. That's where we pick up. Genesis 37 through the end of the chapter follows the life of one of his sons, really all his sons, but primarily one of his sons named Joseph. So look with me. We're going to try to cover quite a bit. You stay with me, and I think this is going to be incredibly impactful in our lives this morning. 
verse 1. So Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Jacob's father was Isaac. Isaac's father was Abraham. They're living in the place exactly where God promised they would live. This is the land. Now Israel, who is Jacob, same person. Now Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than any other of his, of his sons. Problem. Think you got you got family challenges, you got family dynamics that are complicated. Where do you see the life of Jacob and all his son? It says, Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. You remember that story? Joseph had the robe or the tunic of many colors. Abraham, or, uh, Jacob gives this outward demonstration of his affection toward Joseph above all of his other siblings. Does anybody think that's a good idea? No. And there's this bitterness and this animosity that begins to rage in this family toward one another. Verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers. Now, I can't underscore this verse enough. It says, they hated him. It doesn't say, you know, Joseph is kind of a pest. He's the young guy. He's only 17 here in this story. He's, it doesn't say he's a pest. It says they hated him. Keep going. And they could not speak peacefully to him. They wanted nothing to do with Joseph. Serious family conflict here. Verse 5. To add to it, Joseph has these dreams. Says Now, Joseph had a dream, verse 5, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. I'm not going to take time to read all the dreams. You can read it on your own this week. Joseph has a dream one night. He actually has two dreams. Comes down to the breakfast table the next morning. Everybody's having their cornflakes. He says, hey, guys, I had some dreams last night. i got to tell you about them. He says, in my first dream, all you brothers of mine, your grains of wheat bowed down to my grains of wheat. It was awesome. Then he says, and on top of that, I had another dream. And the sun and the moon and the stars, which represents his parents, said, listen, even they bowed down to me. Mom and dad are going to bow down to me. What do y'all think about that? Isn't that a great dream? Is there a child in any of your family that sometimes says things and you go, everything that goes through your mind, you don't have to say? Do y'all have that child in your house? We do. And the constant admonition is, you didn't really need to say that. And the Bible says, verse 8, and they, his brothers, hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Family conflict. Yet through this mess of a family conflict, God is going to carry out his promise. Incredible. Verse 12. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, or Jacob, same person, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. Mark that in your Bible. And he said, Here I am. So here's the son being sent by the father to his brothers. You see a submissive spirit in Joseph. He goes out just as his father has sent him. And as he is sent to his brothers, we pick it back up in verse 18. And it says, 
They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Does anyone know anywhere else in the Bible that someone is sent from the Father, he goes to his own, and his own receive him not? Picture of Jesus. We're going to see more and more of that. So Joseph goes to his brother out in the field, and they said, hey, here comes the dreamer. And we're going we're gonna to put an end to these dreams. They're miles and miles and miles away from home. There's, they're miles and miles away from Jacob and the father. Verse 20 says, come now, let us kill him. We're going to throw him into one of these pits. Then, they'll, then we'll say that a fierce animal has come and devoured him, and we'll see what's going to become of his dreams then. So his brothers say, look, there's the dreamer. We're going to kill him. A note here really quick is that these brothers know how the father loves the son and in their animosity and jealousy towards Joseph, it says just as much about their attitude toward the father as it does about Joseph. We kill him. Done with it. With no regard to Jacob, their dad. So Joseph came to his brothers, verse 23. They stripped him of his robe, his coat of many colors that he wore. They took him, they threw him into a pit. Verse 25 says, then they sit down to eat. <laughs> In other words, they leave their brother for dead, and then they go out for burgers. It's crazy. You know why that's there? Because the callousness of their heart has left the child of promise, the one sent from the father. They've left him for dead, and their hearts are so wicked they don't even care. That's why that's there. For you to see that. The depth of our own wickedness. Verse 31. So they took Joseph's robe, and they slaughtered a goat, and they dipped it in the blood of the goat. They sent the robe to many colors. They brought it back to their father, and they said, look, what we found. Can you identify if this is your son's robe or not? Can you imagine the callousness here in their heart? Hey, Dad, look what we found. Is this, is this Joseph's? Is this, is this your favorite son? Of course, he says, yes, it's his favorite son. And, J and Jacob, the dad, Israel, is just crushed because the boy that he loves so much is left for dead. At this point in the story, Joseph is, in effect, dead to his family. Dead. Now, one of the brothers, Reuben, who was the oldest in the midst of this, said, hey, guys, I don't think this killing of Joseph might be the best idea for us. How about we come up with plan B? There's these traitors coming through. Let's, let's get him out of the pit. Let's sell him to these traitors. They'll carry him off to a distant land, and we'll be done with Joseph that way. I'm not real comfortable with killing my brother. Way to go, Reuben. They said, okay, we're going to do that. Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt, to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So these traders come along, they pull Joseph out of the pit, they end up selling him in the land of Egypt. Now, I'm going to give you five big ideas through this story as we walk through it this morning. Here's your first one, big idea number one. God's providence does not exempt us from pain, loss, and rejection, but does work all these things for good. At this point in the story, you're intended to take a gulp and go, things are not working out well for Joseph. He's been rejected by his brothers. They've left him for dead. They've carried him off to a distant land. And by the way, if you have it, the boy's, the boy's 17. He won't see his dad again for 22 years. He won't see the face of his brothers again for 22 years. But we're intended to see this story that through deep pain, deep hurt, deep offense, Joseph humanly has every right 
humanly speaking, to be deeply offended at his brothers. Anybody been offended this week? Anybody been let down by somebody this week? Anybody been betrayed by somebody? Somebody not carried out what they said they were going to do or something? You see all that right here in the life of Joseph. God's providence does not exempt us from pain, loss, and rejection because here's the reality. We live in a fallen, broken world. But God's purposes and God's providences are sure because of Him in the lives of His children. Verse 39, or chapter 39. So jump on up to chapter 39. Skip over 38 and read that on your own. Jump up to 39. Joseph prospers in Egypt, and then he's going to be humbled again. Verse 1, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's the king. You say, Pharaoh shows up forever. He must have been like 100,000 years old. Pharaoh's a title. So Pharaoh's there. He's the most powerful man in the world. He has a a second command, if you will, Potiphar. Joseph has been hired, or or is, is, is property of Potiphar. The Lord was with Joseph, verse 2, and he became a successful man. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and caused that all that he did to succeed. So Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight and attended to him. And Potiphar made Joseph overseer of his house and put everything in charge. So Potiphar sees something in character in this guy Joseph and says, you know what? I'm going to entrust everything to you in my house. I'm going on vacation and you run everything. Here's the irony of that. Egyptians despise Hebrews. And here's this Hebrew slave boy, if you will, who's now given all this authority in the land of Egypt. God's providence. He is exalted. He is prospered here. Keep going. Potiphar basically said, everything in my house is under your authority except one thing. Verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph. Now, that's a descriptive phrase, isn't it? And she said to him, lie with me. The one thing that Joseph is told he doesn't have possession over now comes as a temptation to him. It's intended to mimic the Garden of Eden. So Joseph is in this place of temptation. Everything is entrusted to him but one thing. Are you going to fall to this temptation? Keeps going. But he refused, verse 8, and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in the house, he's put me in charge of everything. But how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Great lesson here about temptation. Joseph has such a healthy understanding of God he realizes listen to do this thing with you would be a sin against you it'd be a sin against Potiphar but much more it would be a sin against God how could I do this thing keep going verse 10 chapter 39 and she spoke to Joseph day after day after day after day is that a picture of the flesh and temptation day after day after day after day but he would not listen to her lie with her. Big idea number two. Here you go. Ready? God's providence does not exempt us from temptation and holds us responsible for our decisions or our choices. 
Listen, you're intended to see this here. It doesn't, God's providence in no way exempts us from constant battles with temptation in this fallen world. But you're also intended to see this so that we will not fall into the trap of God's providence and say, you know what? My choices don't matter. My obedience doesn't matter. My decisions don't matter because God's going to work it all out in the end. No, God's providence does not exempt us from all of this and our decisions matter. How does all that work out? I don't know. But Joseph's decisions here to walk in purity matter. Joseph does, does what is right. And you think, well, man, he does what's right. God's going to honor it. Everything's going to work out great. Even when you do everything right, don't expect it to always turn out the way you expect, right? So it keeps going. But one day, verse 11 he went to the house to do his work. None of the men of the house were there. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and ran out of the house. Awkward. She says, lie with me. He says, no way. She grabs his garment. He runs out of the house. Left her holding on to his garment. You can imagine what happens. Potiphar returns. She claims all this that has happened to her, verse 19, as soon as his master heard these words that his wife spoke to him, in other words, as soon as Potiphar heard what his wife said, his master said, she said, he's treated me this way, verse 20, his anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. A couple things are to see on this. Joseph has done everything right. He's obeyed God. He's honored God in the moment of temptation. Then the next thing you know, an accusation is hurled against him. A lie is brought against him. He, in all practical purposes speaking, is an innocent man who is falsely accused and is thrown into prison. His master took him and threw him into this prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Verse 20, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. There is a pattern in the life of Joseph that should resonate a, a passage of Scripture in the New Testament. Joseph is humbled, and he's exalted to authority. He's humbled again, and you're going to see him exalted again. And that pattern follows throughout the book of Genesis in the life of Joseph. Now, from prison, what happens? Joseph finds himself in a prison as an innocent man, verse 1 of chapter 40. Sometime after this, it's interesting, when the Bible says sometimes after this or after these things, often you're talking about years and years, probably about a decade here. He's been in prison, and while he is in prison, he's given a place of authority by the prison leader, same pattern, he's humbled, and then he's exalted again. He's now in charge of the prison, and two guys are thrown into the prison. That's where we pick it up in chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king, Pharaoh's cupbearer, and his baker committed offenses against Pharaoh. Verse 5. One night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker. So they're now in prison with Joseph. They have these dreams. And they come to Joseph with their dreams, who's now in charge of the prison. And the cupbearer tells him his dream. Baker tells him his dream. Joseph says, here's the expl explanation of your dream. Cupbearer, here's what it means for you. You're going to be reinstated and stand in Pharaoh's court. Baker, sorry, bad news, you're going to be killed. Sorry. Verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, 
he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of his chief cupbearer and the head of his chief baker. Verse 21, he restored the cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Cupbearer is right there next to Pharaoh. You'll see why that's important. Verse 22, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted the dream. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. When the cupbearer left the prison, Joseph said, hey man, when you go to Pharaoh's court, just like I told you you're going to, and now we've seen it play out, would you remember me? Do you remember me? I'm, I'm truly the innocent guy down here in this prison. And the Bible says, two years later, he forgot him. Didn't keep his promise. Anybody ever let you down and not kept the promise they told you they'd keep? Joseph is forgotten. Time passes. He spends two more years in prison. He's forgotten by the cupbearer. The story began when Joseph was 17. Now we find Joseph at 30 years of age. Time passes, and here's big idea number three for you. God's providence rarely operates on our timetable. Can we just all agree that that's true? Can we just all agree that, God, I, I really do promise that you, you, you know what you're doing in my life, but doggone, could you just not work around my schedule? You know how inconvenient sometimes your providence is, God? You know how things just seem to last forever, and I've been waiting forever, forever? Joseph has now been in prison something around 13 years, waiting, trusting, but not for one second did God's purposes and promises in Joseph's life wane. Not for a second. But from Joseph's time-bound perspective, it's as if God has forgotten him. And you and I live in the same place sometimes. God's providence rarely operates on our timetable. Skip ahead, Genesis 41. So back to Pharaoh's court. The cupbearer is there. We pick up in chapter 41, verse 1. It says, after two more years... Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So here's this dream theme that happens. Now Pharaoh, who is functionally the most powerful human on the planet, begins to dream. Proverbs chapter 21 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God is working in the life of Pharaoh to carry out his purposes. And Pharaoh begins to have these dreams. He calls his magicians in. Nobody can interpret it. The cupbearer is next to him. He sees all that's going on, and the cupbearer says something to this effect. Hey, Pharaoh, listen, I seem to remember this guy in prison with me. He's a Hebrew. We know you guys don't like Hebrews. But he interpreted my dream perfectly. And Pharaoh says, go get him. Now, you're intended to see the incredible irony in that that the most powerful human on the planet at this time is calling for a piddly Hebrew slave out of prison. Wow. Incredible irony. God uses the weak and debased things of the world to confound the wise. So Pharaoh says, go get him. Bring him into my court. And Pharaoh says, here's my dreams. And he explains the dreams. You can read them on your own. I'm not going to take time to read them. He has all his dreams. He says, Joseph, can you help me? Can you interpret these dreams? And Joseph begins in verse 25. He says to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to you, Pharaoh, what he is about to do. Verse 30. But after them, there's going to arise seven years of famine. He says, here's the dreams. Pharaoh, seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. You're going to have 14 years. God has revealed to you what's going to happen in the land of Egypt and even all the earth. 
And Joseph says, God has said this is going to happen quickly. He's revealed this to you. And then Joseph says, oh, by the way, Pharaoh, I recommend you put somebody to be in charge of famine preparation because it's coming. And Pharaoh says back to Joseph, he says this, verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only as regard the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to you, Joseph, a Hebrew slave. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, verse 42, and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, and this 30-year-old Hebrew boy who was humbled in the pit of the prison is now exalted to the place of what is really equal authority over all the inhabited earth. You can't make this stuff up. So here's Joseph after all that's happened to him with his brothers, and after all the betrayal, and after all the offense, and after all the hurt, and now this dude is in effect sitting on the throne, ruling all the inhabited earth at this time. Verse 57, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. You have a picture of all the nations coming to this rejected Hebrew to buy and find bread. It's intended to paint a picture of one who said, I am the bread of life. The story goes on. Verse 42, just a couple more and we'll land the plane. Genesis chapter 42. Now, time passes. Started when Joseph was 17. He began to reign when he was 30. Seven years of famine. I mean, seven years of plenty have taken place. So that would make Joseph 37. Two years of the famine have begun. So that makes him about 39. That means he hasn't seen his dad, hasn't seen his brothers in 22 years. And that's where the story picks up in Genesis chapter 42. The focus shifts back to the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, and what God is doing there. Verse 1 of chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are y'all standing here looking at each other? Somebody go get some grain? I've heard that you can purchase grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy grain for us that we'll live and not die. So Jacob gets his sons together, 10 of them, not Joseph because he's already there, not Benjamin because he's the youngest, and Jacob says, you're not going to send Benjamin, he's the only son left of my treasured wife Rachel, you're not going to take Benjamin. So the 10 boys go down, they go down to Egypt. Now this is where the story gets just incredible. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. In other words, you want grain, you got to go through Joseph. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Remember that anywhere? Verse 8, and Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. 
This is an incredible story. Can you, I'm just going to take some license here for a minute. Can you just imagine Joseph administering all that he does as the leader? People are streaming from all the nations to get grain. He looks in the line. I don't know how it all played out. And he goes, wait a minute, that's Reuben. That's Simeon. It's my brothers. 22 years later. Now watch. The last time they saw Joseph, he was a despised Hebrew slave in the bottom of the pit. Not anymore. He's on a throne. And they don't recognize him on the throne because he's veiled before their eyes. He's wearing all the garments of Egypt. He speaks through a translator. Egyptian leadership never spoke to common people. They spoke through a translator. So he's speaking through a translator. They come. They speak to Joseph. They don't recognize who this is, but he immediately knows who they are. Hang on to that. Genesis 43, they come, he tests them because he doesn't know what's in their heart. He says, and we'll get to 43 in a minute, he says back in 42, and we're not going to look there, he says, y'all are spies. He wants to see what's in their heart, he knows what you're doing, he says, you're spies. They said, no, no, we have a father, we have a younger son, Benjamin, Joseph knows all, he says, okay, if you're telling the truth, go back and get the boy Benjamin and bring him to me. And all of them go, oh no, dad's not going to like this. So they go back to Canaan, they go back to Jacob, they said there's land, there, there's grain, but we got to take Benjamin back with us. Joseph, J- Jacob, the dad, says, no way, you're not taking Benjamin back, there's no way I'm going to let you take Benjamin. Judah steps up and says, dad, trust the boy to me. Trust his life to my life. And you see Judah begin to take a place of prominence in the family that plays its way out. We'll see that in a minute. So Jacob agrees, sends the boys back. When they get back to Egypt, some time has passed, probably another year or so at all this. They show back up. When they show up with Benjamin, they are escorted to Joseph's palace. And Joseph brings them into his home, verse 33 of chapter 43. And they set down before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked around at one another in amazement. They have a table prepared. They look around and they say, we're sitting in our birth order. How does God know that? Amazement. And then it says, verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. I'm telling you, you see over and over and over pictures of grace here. Portions of his endless supply are now given to the very ones who left him for dead. Portions are taken from his table, verse 34, and they drink and they were merry with him. Now, Joseph's still guarded. He hasn't revealed himself in all of his glory yet. He's still veiled to their eyes, if you will, and he's not sure what's happened in their heart. Here's what Joseph doesn't know at this point, that over all these years that God has been working in Joseph's life, God has been working in the lives of his brothers. He doesn't know that. So he says, okay, I've got to find out what's in their heart. And he tricks the boys, and he, he hides his chalice in Benjamin, the, the, the youngest son's bag. He says, okay, y'all get out of here. Go back to your dad, Jacob. I'm going to send grain with you. And Benjamin is caught with his chalice as if he were a thief. And the boys are brought back in. And, Jacob, and Joseph says, all right, y'all lied to me. Benjamin lied. And it was a setup, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. And here's what happens. I want you to look at me. 43, verse 33. Judah steps up and says, Now therefore, 
Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy, Benjamin, go back with his brothers. Verse 34. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? Stop right there. Here's what Joseph learns. Number one, representing the boys, they now have a love for their father that they didn't have all those years in the past. And Judah steps up and basically says, me for him. Take me. Take my life. 22 years earlier, it was the exact opposite. No, no, no. You take the boy's life. You do whatever you do. I don't care. But now God has so worked in their lives. Judah is representing the boys and says, no, me for him. And it's a picture of sacrifice. And Joseph sees this transformation that has gone on in his brother's lives. And he melts. And that brings us to chapter 45, and we're going to read five verses here, and we're going to be done. This is the crescendo. So Joseph sees all this. He sees the change of heart in his brothers. He gets to see his baby brother, Benjamin, finally, verse 1 of chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. All the Egyptians were told to leave. It's now Joseph and his brothers. Verse 2, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. Anywhere else in your Bible that one stands over his brothers and weeps. Stands over them and he weeps for them so that the Egyptians heard it. And the house of Pharaoh heard it. Verse 3. Here's the point that the story's been building to for all these years. And now, the one that was left for dead by his brothers, who years and years ago was in a pit and sold into slavery, now in verse 3, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Wow. You can't make this stuff up. And he reveals who he is in all of his glory to those who up to that moment were blinded to see who he truly was. And he says, Reuben, Simeon, Naphtali, Asher, Dan, I'm your brother, Joseph. Now what do you think is going through their mind about this point? Ooh. Last time we saw this guy, we left him for dead. And the human assumption at this point is, vengeance is mine, and I've been waiting to get back at you, and this seething bitterness has been flowing through me for all these 22 years. I'm so glad you're here. I can't wait to get my revenge. But that's not what you see from Joseph. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? Dear love for his father. But his brothers could not answer, for they were dismayed at his presence. I guess so, they're speechless. Verse 4, so Joseph says to his brothers, in one of the great verses in your Bible about grace, one of the great verses in your Bible about God drawing us in grace, even as we are offenders against him, Joseph says to his brothers, Come near to me, please. Translation, come closer. Come closer. 
and a beautiful picture of grace. And he continues on, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph with whom you sold into Egypt, verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why would we not be distressed? Why are you not upset? Why are you not ready to kill us? Why are you not ready to exact human justice? Because you were the offended party, Joseph. End of verse 5. For God sent me before you to reserve life. Watch this. Joseph has a healthy understanding of the providence of God. You did it. But it was completely in God's control and authority. You sent me here, but ultimately, God was in complete control. Now, watch this. I'm going to give you two more big ideas, and we're done. Time's up. Big idea number four is this. God's providence enables us to choose forgiveness instead of bitterness. Now, you tell me that Joseph had every human right to keep a record to bear a grudge, to hold on to, 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 to bitterness, and to bring all that up, but he doesn't. He says, you did this, but God sent me here. He understood Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good in the lives of his redeemed people. Here's a quick application for you. We're going to move on. Here it is. Ready for this? Some of you in this room this morning are poisoning your own soul because you are holding on to past hurts, past bitterness, past offenses, past wrongs. And you think it is power over some person if you hold on to that. But what you're holding on to is poison to your soul. Joseph is able to continue and lead Egypt and press on and carry on because he entrusts his life to a sovereign God and doesn't chase the lie that if I hold on to this bitterness, then it's going to give this little spark to my soul and I'm going to carry this power. He doesn't realize the one who is in prison is the one who holds on to bitterness and unforgiveness. The providence of God allows the people of God, by the way, who have received infinite forgiveness because we are transgressors against God, much more than these brothers were against Joseph. We who have received infinite forgiveness are able to practice this kind of forgiveness in our daily lives. And I'll give you a promise, you'll have an opportunity to live this out this week <laughs> because we live in a fallen world. Providence of God allows us to practice Forgiveness instead of bitterness. And big idea number five, and we're done. Team can come on up. Big idea number five is this. Is God's providence is never just about me. Whatever God is doing, whatever is happening, whatever comes into your life, as a redeemed child of God, is never, ever, ever just about you. Joseph had no idea when his brothers were selling him and dropping him to a pit, God was doing something for the nation of Egypt. He had no idea when he was in the bottom of that prison that God was carrying out his promise that he had made to Abraham. He had no idea that he was painting a picture of what was to come. He had no idea. 
that as God orchestrated all these things in his life, watch this, God was painting a picture of a greater Joseph who was to come. And you're intended to read Genesis 37 through 50, and you're intended to see an incredible life of a man named Joseph, but you're to stop and go, wait a minute, there's a greater one than Joseph who has come and who will come again. There is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who was sent from his father to his own, and his own received him not. There was one sent from the father who came and was humbled on the cross and was exalted to the right hand of God in resurrection and there will be a day the Bible says when this one who was pierced he will be seen by everyone even those who pierced him and Revelation chapter 3 tells us there's a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and the eyes of the world will be open to say wait a minute that's not some weak feeble Jew that is the Lord of all lords Hallelujah. What a Savior. Would you bow your head with me this morning? So I pray this morning that the Word of God is doing its work in you. Maybe you're here this morning and you, like these brothers, need to hear, come closer as the Spirit of God draws you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're holding on to bitterness and hurt from the past and it's saying more about your view of God than it's saying about the situation. Trusting God to do His work in you this morning as we continue to respond. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this truth. Help us now to continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.